Welcome everyone to Breaking Big Blue. I'm your host Jordan Ron on ESPN, ESPN.com Giants reporter, and this is our post Super Bowl episode of Breaking Big Blue here. Uh, what we're going to do in the last uh, episode of this podcast, what I did was I, I, I sort of laid out a plan of how the Giants, I would go about handling the Giants off season, and you know, kind of how to get them back into that. Uh, at least Super Bowl contention. We know it's going to be a process, but how, how they go about doing that. So this week, we're going to go over some of the moves they made, but most of all, we're going to be looking at how to rebuild. I, rebuild is probably not the right word. Or finish the rebuild of the offensive line, right? Because they've already put in resources. They drafted Will Hernandez in the second round last year. They signed Nate Solder this past off, uh, last offseason to, at the time, what at the time, was the largest offensive lineman contract in NFL history. So clearly the Giants have started the rebuild there. Now the question is, how do they now address the right side? How do they finish it? Uh, what pieces do they need? Uh, do they bring back some of the pieces that are there? So we'll get into that. We're gonna, we'll get into that a little bit also with uh, our guest today. It'll be Jeff Schwartz, former Giants offensive lineman. Now an NFL analyst, really a radio host, uh, uh, does a little bit of everything. So we'll, we'll get into it with, with Jeff because he, that's the one thing he really studies more than, way more than the average person is he keeps an eye on the offensive line, who's playing well, who's struggling, and, uh, he can give us good insight on maybe how this Giants organization can finally get this right. Because if you think about it, it's been a while now. I mean, even in 20, 2011, remember they won the Super Bowl in 2011, the, the 2011 season at least? You know, we say, oh, that, their offensive line, I mean, at the time, their offensive line wasn't very good. That was the end of the offensive line there, right? They were getting, they were getting close to the end with the Snee, O'Hara, uh, the Soybert era. I mean, that 2011 team was really the end of it. That center, I believe, uh, they had a guy that they signed, the, the free agent, uh, I'm drawing a blank, David Boss at that point, right? I believe he, he was the, the center even at that point. So they were past that, like, uh, golden year generation. This was the very end of that golden era of Giants offensive line when at one point they had, you know, the Kareem McKenzie's, the David Deals, the, uh, Sean O'Hara's, the Chris Sneeze, uh, and Rich Soybert. And at that, by that 2011, they were just getting by. And remember, if you remember even that, that, that championship game that year, it was against the 49ers. Uh, Eli Manning just got smashed that day. He was getting his rear handed to him, right? I mean, just getting up and getting plastered and making throws. And the offensive line that season, the running game wasn't very good, I believe, in the regular season. So they're trying to finally get it right. How do they do it? Do they keep Jamon Brown? Do they... Where do they get a right tackle? Uh, do they, what do they do with Chad Wheeler? What do they do at center? So we'll get into that in a little bit. In the meantime, let's talk a little, real quickly about some of the moves that have been made over the last couple weeks here. Pretty much no brainers. Jonathan Stewart, we're taping this on Thursday. So yesterday, uh, was the deadline for his contract, his option to be picked up if the Giants wanted to. Uh, it, it was a $500,000 option. He would have counted $3.2 million against the salary cap. So that was a no-brainer not to pick it up, right? I mean, and then you look at the financial implications of that. Uh, $2.35 million base salary, a $400,000 roster bonus per game, 
And, you know, that's a total of $400,000 roster bonus that he could have gotten for each, you know, playing in each game. And a workout bonus of $200,000. So pretty much the Giants are going to be able to recoup almost all of that, if not all of that $3.2 million against the salary cap. Uh, it depends. That $500,000 bonus they was prorated over two years. So actually $250,000 was counted against last year's cap. So I'm just not sure if that $250,000 uh, gets put back on this year's cap or not till next year because it happened already after this year started. So uh, either way, they're getting $3 million or so against a salary cap. It's a no-brainer move. He had six carries, 17 yards. They didn't even want to activate him when after he came off the injured reserve late in the season. So, it, look, we all knew that move, that move was doomed when they made it. It was a foolish, silly move. We all knew he was done. Uh, it was a miscalculation by the Giants' front office and uh, particularly the pro personnel department, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Uh, you know, the pro personnel department – for the most part, I mean, yes, there's Dave Gettleman, the general manager, and kind of the head of the pro personnel department, who is now Mark Kahn's, who's Dave Gettleman's guy. They're ultimately the ones probably making these decisions, but those evaluations are helped made by a pro personnel department where the people in there are pretty much have been here for a decade or so, right? I mean, that's a pretty stable department within the Giants, so even though they changed general managers that department didn't change, and that's something to keep an eye on because they did not do a great job in year one, even under Dave Gettleman. They hadn't done a great job even before that. You could I'm not sure how you make sense of it. Think about it. They signed Olivier Vernon, Janaris Jenkins, and Damon Harrison. They had some success with them, but it was the right mix, the right moves. Those moves in particular, I don't think you could look at it and say, those were bad evaluations. We knew you kind of got exactly what you thought when it, if what they are is players. But, you know, there's been a bunch of moves over the years, the past four or five years, which you could look at and you sit there and you kind of scratch your head and you're like, is that really the right move here? You know, uh, what made us think that, uh, you know, Alec Ogletree was the the right guy? to pay $10 million to be our middle linebacker. Was that really the right way to go? And I know there's more to it than just that. And then there's the Jonathan Stewart, the Nate Solders, all these moves uh, that have been sort of made over the past couple of years, even the safety position for years. Uh, the, the Giants tried to fill guys in there, and it just hasn't hasn't worked out for them. The Leon Halls of the world, the William Gays of the world. Uh, there's been a lot of moves that you look at and you say, for the most part, they've had trouble. You know, picking up these guys in free agency and, and sort of integrating them into the team aside from those three big guys. And there's the occasional guy here or there that kind of pops in and, and, and plays really well for them. Uh, so, and the other move they made was outside linebacker Connor Barwin. That was a sort of mutual agreement from both sides. He signed a two year deal last offseason. I mean, he's another one you could add to that pro personnel, uh, questionable moves. Patrick Omame was another one as well. Uh, so, um. Yeah. So Connor Barman was kind of a no-brainer outside linebacker. Had one sack. Uh, didn't really play much as the year went along. He played early in the year. Didn't play especially well. Kind of was a little bit up and down early in the year when he was filling in for Olivier Vernon. Really, just wasn't a difference maker. Which 
you really can't expect him to be at this point of his career. I don't think that's what he brings to the table or what anyone should have realistically thought he brought to the table. But, uh, yeah, so he decided and the Giants decided that that was something they moved on for. He was set to make, I'll find his exact numbers in a second. But, uh, again, it's a cap-saving move, money-saving move. The Giants wanted to get younger at that position. Uh, they're going to attack the defensive line in the draft. Barwin's cap number, $1.865 million. So, right, 365000 of that is dead money. So they save... One point five million, so one point five million and three million from Jonathan Stewart, and now look, we're already talking about four and a half million dollars trim from the salary cap, right there with those two moves. Pretty much no brainers. Now, next up, there's three more decisions to be made. Right? It's essentially, I mean, the Giants don't have a lot of veterans. Okay, uh, now you can sit there and say, they, should they cut Kareem Martin? Guys like that, uh, Rhett Ellison, if they wanted to, they could save money. But I, I think Rhett Ellison serves a purpose on this team. I don't see them doing that. Kareem Martin, it's not a huge amount of money. I, he's still a contributor. He started at outside linebacker this year. Uh, so I don't think they're going to do that. To me, it's more they have three decisions to make now. Eli Manning, we've talked about that before, $23.2 million, Starting quarterback, the Giants haven't committed to him fully yet. It seems to be leaning in that direction. Uh, probably, I mean, I would say almost certainly not the same price that he's at right now. But likely Eli Manning, Olivier Vernon is another guy, which I would say is probably heading towards him also possibly coming back. And Janoris Jenkins, another one. They moved money down the line a little bit last year on Janoris Jenkins. That was kind of the hint that they would have liked to bring him back this year. And he did have a pretty good year. So I think the likelihood is that all three of those guys right now are brought back. I know that might not be the popular opinion. And it might not be how I would I would conduct business in this case. But to me right now, if I had to say the likelihood of each guy being back, i put Eli at like 60, 65%. Vernon at like, 55% and Jenkins at more like 80%. So all on the plus side of 50. So those will be some of the bigger uh, money guys on the roster, but their contracts might get adjusted. Eli Manning's contract might not come back at $23.2 million against the cap. Olivier Vernon might not come back at 19 and a half million dollars against the cap uh so uh there's there's ways that the giants can move money around maybe put it into incentives that's usually how they like to do it and how they've done it in the past i have to look up which guys they did it the guy off the top of my head that pops in to my head is um dwayne harris i know they did it with dwayne harris not can't think of maybe they did it with mark herzlick at some point no i'm not no i don't think that's right uh, but there's a couple more, there's a couple other guys. I think they, they did it with Orleans Darkwa. There's another one that they did it with. So there's a little track record of moving money around, lowering their number. And essentially what they do is they give these guys, you know, they cut the pay, but then they try and sell it as, 
Well, it's not necessarily a pay cut because they have the opportunity to earn it back. But when you look at it, they almost never earn it all back. Okay? I mean, they got to have the best years of their career almost to earn it all back most of the time. So that rarely happens. Now, Orleans Darkwa came pretty close because he ended up being the Giants' leading rusher and being their top rusher that year. The only reason he didn't, because there's all different ways to get it, and then part of the money was he needed to play a certain amount on special teams. And because he was playing so much of running back and he was a starting running back, his special team snaps were decreasing. So he wasn't able to make that part of the you know incentive that he could win, earn back. So that's that that's the likelihood of how the Giants are going to handle some of these veterans with big contracts. Now remember, this is a roster that was pretty much gutted. I think by the end of the year there was something along the lines of 15 players or so that were still on the roster, probably a little more if you look at an injury reserve. Let's say 16 60 guys that were on the roster the year before. So there's not a lot of veterans. There's not a lot of guys with huge contracts that you say, "Okay, these are contracts we need to adjust, we need to move on from. So really, those three big ones I named are the ones to keep an eye out for in these next couple weeks. And we'll talk about them in future episodes. In the meantime, let's address the offensive line and figure out how to fix it with our guest, Jeff Schwartz. On to the next one. All right, so here he is, Jeff Schwartz. Right? I mean, I ha- wait, first of all, how do I even start? What's What titles do I need to give you these days? What, what's the... What's the Jeff Schwartz titles that you go that that you go with? I mean, it, let, let's hear let's hear uh, this list just, right now. I just say media personality. Is that the way to do it? Oh yeah, okay, that all works. Around, that works. All around, all around badass. <laughs> okay, very nice uh, self descriptor there. That's like one of those things. Can you really give yourself that nickname? Like, can you? You know, it's not really necessarily I mean, a nickname, just, but well, people call you that is the question right badass jeff schwartz all right so you, you could definitely catch him at espn radio at times i definitely heard you uh a bunch yeah. over the past few weeks and but and a bunch of other spots so now one other thing before we start getting into all, a lot of offensive line stuff here you know i was thinking about it this week especially when with julian edelman winning the super bowl mvp the schwartzes have kind of been pushed to the back of the Jewish football player uh, platform here, you know, like you and your brother's brother, Jeff's brother Mitch, is a for is a player for the uh, right tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. Jeff, of course, is a former uh, NFL player, played for the Giants. Uh, but Julian Edelman is claiming, uh, you know, I mean, you you obviously don't have this claim, but he's claiming to be Jewish and uh, the first Jewish uh, MVP of a Super Bowl. He is the first Jewish MVP of the Super Bowl, um, and obviously that's that's awesome. I mean, you know, I, I would I never play in the Super Bowl. My brother got close this year. I mean, we cannot be MVPs of the Super Bowl, so I'm glad that someone at least can have the mantle of Jewish MVP. I thought about this too. I mean, how many just season MVPs have Jews ever had? I mean, Hank Greenberg, I think was was Koufax ever an MVP? Um, well, there is the there's a recent there's up. a recent one, Ryan Braun. Ryan, yeah, you're right. And Alex, Alex Bregman was the was he the World Series MVP? I believe so. Yes, so the Astros. Look at this. We, look at look this history here. So what we're doing here is we're going to try and rebuild the Giants' offensive line, right? 
We're going to talk about the best way to, to, to try to go about that, what you think. Now, if I say rebuild, they're already kind of in the middle of a rebuild, right? Because uh, that left side of the line, you got Nate Solder, signed a huge contract this past offseason, largest in NFL history, and Will Hernandez at left guard, right? You right. Good, you, so you, you, yeah. good start there? You good, you good with that, right? Yeah, and I think Soldier, if he got used to playing with Eli Manning, it looked better. I think it took a, a little bit of time to realize that Eli Manning's dropping a little bit deeper than Tom Brady is, and you're not getting quite the same, quite the same look as, as you have with Tom. The ball might, might not be getting out as quickly, and it took him a little bit of time to figure it out, but I thought the offense really in general played better, obviously, down the stretch, and he was part of that. He was pro football focused, you know, it's hard when you dish out blame for sacks, right? I mean, it's not exactly accurate. It's hard to tell you. It's not, it's not a perfect science, right? But they had him down as seven sacks for the season allowed. And I believe six of them were in that first eight games of the year where they started one and seven. So that, that, that kind of goes along yeah. the lines of what you said there yeah. of how they, they got better as it went along. Yeah, played much better down. I mean, Will Hernandez played much better down the stretch too. I think it, it which is expected. Really for him early in the year, and it got better as season went on. Yeah. So okay. So we're good on the left side of the line, right? That that they're yeah. they're okay there. What the center position? John Jalapio is going to come back. Uh, then they have Spencer Pulley, who they played a bunch there. What, what do you? Where do you stand on those guys? About you? You think they, Jalapio looked all right? It was a short. It was a, a small sample size, but. Would you be all right if they came back? You think, and, and we're able to go down that road again? Yeah, I mean, if John if John came back as a starting center, I think that would that would really work. I, mean, I think John Greco had played there well, but obviously you know, he's not the future of, of the center position. I think John. Did, I think look, in general they got better as the season went on. I think John was one of those guys. Obviously, breaking your ankle is not ideal, but there's a reason why he won the job out of camp, right? I mean, he was obviously the, the, the best player for for the position. And, I think he showed some strength at times, and it's tough to tell. You know, he didn't play a full season; it's tough to really tell. But I thought, I thought again, I thought he's he could be the guy that you, you keep there at center. I wouldn't be surprised if they brought in competition, though. Right? Yeah. I mean, so center is not a position they're probably going to address and go like big. You know, there's just not there's no gonna, there's not going to be a huge investment in the center in the draft or a huge investment in the center in free agency. It, it's just that, that that's rare. It's not, that's rare. Correct. And, and John is young, too, where they're not going to invest a high draft pick in the center. Yeah, yeah, so the likelihood is he's in there, he has competition, Spencer Pulley or whoever else they decide to bring in in there. Now, the right side is yeah. where the Giants need to improve, okay? I think we are in agreement on that. How about yes. that? Yes, yes. Where do you stand on Jamon Brown? Came in, played the final eight games. Uh is at least was at least proved to be uh, you know a, a decent NFL starter, which was a massive upgrade from what they got in the first half of the year when Omame, Patrick Omame was in there did not play well. So, but there's also the, the downsides to it. He committed eight penalties in eight games. Not all were you know accepted. Uh, allowed three sacks according to Pro Football Focus, uh, and he was graded pretty low. But definitely gave them a little boost in the run game. So, where do you stand on on Brown? Yeah, you know, you're right about, you know, he really did a good job of, of boosting the run game. Um, look, if you have to go back and play him as their starter this year, I don't think it's a bad thing. Obviously, I think that if you were, I know we're talking about him at right guard right now, but if you were to say, like, I would, I'd be okay if they kept Jamon Brown and then really upgraded right tackle in the draft. I mean, I think, I think that's where you go. I mean, I guess we're in if you wanted to. Um, but I think if you, 
if you had to choose which position that you really want to upgrade, I would say you upgrade the right tackle and try to sign Brown rather than trying to maybe upgrade both positions or upgrading right guard but then leaving Wheeler right tackle. No, yeah, I agree with that. Because, look, right tackle, if you go and decide to do that in free agency, and some of the top guys are Trent Brown, Donovan Smith, who's from the Bucks. Uh, Jawan James from the Dolphins, and even Darrell Williams, who was hurt this year from the Panthers, who Gettleman knows well. You're talking about guys that are yeah. 25, 26 years old and have proven to at least be decent tackles in the NFL, right? And decent tackles in the NFL, when they hit free agency, ask Nate Solder what that means, right? Four years, $35 million. Yeah. And is, is it really sustainable to have a guy on the right side and the left side, a tackle where you go get both of them in free agency. Now you're paying a ton to your tackles as free agents. That's a tough way to, I think, build a team I that mean, way. Yeah, it is. But it's a, you know, right tackles are not getting paid like left tackles. I mean, what, what, Jordan, what would be the difference if, if, you had, you know, if you had, let's say, paid Justin Pugh to play right tackle at a right tackle salary, let's just say, and then you end up paying Eric Flowers. I know I'm not talking about the talent wise, but just you drafted Flowers, you paid him thirteen million dollars to play left tackle, you drafted Pew, you paid him seven million dollars to play right tackle. What's the difference between paying Soldier just a little bit more to play left tackle and then paying someone eight million dollars a year to play right tackle? I mean, you have to spend the money somewhere on the offensive line. Obviously you want to draft your own guys and pay them. That's ideally how you build offensive line. But you still need to add that talent. Now, it could be to the draft. I'm fine with that at right tackle. But I wouldn't be opposed to paying someone to play right tackle. Just I know it sounds bad that, to pay two guys to play your tackles, but you know, the Chiefs, for example, they're paying Eric Fisher a lot of money. They're paying my brother a lot of money. Um, you know, you, you got to pay your tackles. Well, what time is that? at what point is that right tackle money going to start going up? Because let's be honest, the right tackle is just as important these days as left tackle. So if you're – I mean – if average left tackles are getting paid through the roof, why wouldn't you pay a you know a twenty six year old right tackle? I mean, I think I think this off season we might see these right tackles really you know shock people with how much they start making, and I think your brother would probably uh, enjoy that. Well, let's, let's, yeah. How about we start with how about we start with my brother? Give some more money. Um, <laughs> I uh, look. They, they it, it's at some point at some point um, it's going to have to kind of even out because you're right. The right tackle market correction. I mean, look at, you know, look, I mean, look at the division, you know, the NFC East, you have, you know, Lawrence now, who knows if he'll be a cowboy, but you got Lawrence Kerrigan and Brandon Graham, you know, or Chris Long, whoever you want to put over there. I mean, that's better than anything you're getting on the other side. Right? I, 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 I don't, I mean, the only, the only thing about right tackle that makes it less, a little, slightly less important as a left tackle is like, the quarterback, it's most quarterbacks because they're right-handed can see it, right? They can see it coming at them. Yeah, but, see, I just, but that's a I minimal thing, here. I think, at this point. No, it is because you're in shotgun all the time. So your back is not turned at the start of the snap to the left tackle. You can see that vision now more. The reason why more pass rushers are over the right tackle, in my opinion, is it's actually quicker to the ball at right tackle. You can reach out for the ball and hit the ball easier than you can from the left side. Like You have to you have to kind of wrap around the quarterback to hit the ball if you're the left tackle, if you're rushing over the left tackle. If you're rushing over the right tackle, you just have to hit the ball at any point, and it's easier to get to the ball than it is if you are over the left tackle. Right. Now I get it. I mean, but, yeah. So, look. So what do you what do you think of those right tackles that I named? I mean, those those are going to be probably the best right tackles on the market. There's some other interesting guys, like a, sort of, Guys that have been semi-starters in their career, the guy, the, yeah. the Adrian Waddle kind of guys, the 
you know the the Redskins have some guys. Uh, uh, I, how do you pronounce his name? Ty Nishecki. Nishecki? Um I like. I think Darrell Williams um, would be um, would be uh, um, a really interesting prospect. He played really well, you know, a lot two years ago. I guess now coming off an injury, you could get him very cheap, in my opinion. And you talk about you know value, right? Um, Gettleman knows him well. That would be that would be an interesting fit there because you get him for for pretty cheap. If you can, I mean, yeah, that that's, that seems like a move that can make sense. Now, here's my question with the Giants because, first of all, uh, Jamon Brown in a way kind of reminds me of DJ Fluker in regards to sort of the kind of player he is. Yeah, right? he, I think he moved a little bit better than him, but yes, I could see that. Yeah, right. So the Giants in general have this sort of bigger, uh, it's a modern version of uh, grinded out. You know, run, run heavy power offensive line, right? If the, if, if, you know, they bring back Jamon Brown and Jalapio is a bigger center, Will Hernandez is probably a better, uh, run blocker or more of like a, you know, road grading type of, yeah. of blocker than he is, uh, you know, fast, quick on his feet kind of guy that, that, that you want to pull all the time. Does that, does that, how much does that matter in regards to playing in today's pass heavy NFL? I don't know. I mean, look, the, the Patriots' offensive line just won the Super Bowl. I mean, they 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 run they they run the ball right. I mean, you could you could be a big offensive line and 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 do that and still pass protect. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. If you can move, you can move. It doesn't matter. You know, Trent Brown is playing at, at three fifty plus at left tackle. Yeah, he's huge. If you can move, you can move. It doesn't matter. You know, he he's a throwback. I mean, I thought guys like Trent Brown couldn't play in the NFL. I mean, you know, I when I when I left the NFL in 20, 2016, I was like the largest guard. I mean, guys went off three hundred forty pounds. Yeah. And look at Trent Brown. You know, Trent Brown is is the biggest tackle since Brian McKinney, I think, probably starting left tackle. Um, and that's just not done nowadays. But if you can move, you can play. So I'm not really worried about the size of those guys. We're going to ask you a little, go back in time a little bit, right? So you you leave, yeah. you come to the Giants. What? Tell me, why do you think? You look at it, you know, you see, you saw the culture, the, the, what was going on there. Why do you think this team has had such problems over the past couple of years? Or not a couple of years, but really four or five years of why they haven't been able to sort of build it up in the offensive line. They've never really been able to put together that line that just gels and, and is able to be successful over an extended period of time. Well, obviously I was brought in to help that and it didn't work out. I mean, obviously we, we know that. I don't have to, to rehash that. Um, you know, Weston Richburg is a good football player. They decided not to re-sign him. I, I don't know why. Um, I think he got a raw deal in New York. He drafted a good player, did not want to sign him. Justin Pugh didn't want to sign him either. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, you draft the guys that, that were, that you could have signed. Obviously that the GM change kind of maybe helped some of those, but, uh, move those guys out. But nonetheless, you have guys you drafted. You, you didn't want to pay them. Um, you know, Eric Flowers was a bust. So when you have a first round talent that busts, that's obviously not, not good. And that's, that, that's it, right? I mean, that's the last four years of, of really investments, uh, was Eric Flowers, uh, Weston Richburg, Pew and me. And that's the four guys you expected to be your offensive line. I mean, maybe now you would, I would have been done there because I'm 32 years old, but <laughs> nonetheless, I mean, that's who you expected the offensive line to be. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't because of for various reasons. So that's I, I don't know why they didn't want to sign Pew and, and Weston. They went ahead and got big deals elsewhere, and you know Weston was okay this year. I thought you know Pew had injuries and didn't play all year. Flowers, which is why, which was always the problem with him, and that's you know part of the reason why yeah. they didn't sign him. Yeah, correct. So right. it was a risk. Um, that is, that is, 
correct. I, and that's, that's, that's fair on his part. And Flowers obviously ended up in Jacksonville this year, which was still surprising me because of the offensive line coach in Jacksonville. And I was just, I was very surprised he ended up in Jacksonville with Tom Coughlin again. But he didn't play terribly well there either. <laughs> no surprise. So when, when you when you have four guys you, that you put to be your core all either get hurt, not resign, or just be a bust, that's what happens. And they, you know, for whatever reason, between the time they had that offensive line, you know, with with Deal and, and Snee and Soyberg and O'Hara and, and Reggie, they, they didn't, like, invest very many draft picks or offense or free agents after that process, right? I mean, what? You know, Will Beattie, I guess, was was he a high draft pick? I don't think he was, right? I believe it was a second. Um, Will Beattie was a second-round pick. Okay, so – and he played, what, for six or seven years at left tackles? That's, I mean, you got good value out of, out of Will Yeah, they got I'd decent say. value out of him. Um, he got injured, and then yeah. that was sort of the end of his, you know, the, the – but he was, but he won a Super Bowl with with the Giants. So he obviously was was good enough to be a Super Bowl winning offensive line. And then you had, you know, you you invested in, in the James Brewer didn't really pan. I mean, you just didn't you didn't invest a lot of capital in the offensive line. Look at the best offensive lines on the NFL. Typically, they have some capital. I mean, the Colts have three first rounders and second rounder on their offensive line. The Cowboys have have three first rounders plus. I mean, Lyle Collins was going to be a first rounder before what happened. They have four first rounders right. on their offensive line. Except if you're the Patriots, you don't need to do that. You could they could just they could just put it together with them. I mean, they're just they're just I mean, I they're just in another Trent, league. They just tool on Bill Belichick is just tooling on everybody else around the league. Yeah, I mean Trent Brown was I looked at this the other day. Trent Brown was a trade. Joe Thune was uh third round. Uh David Andrews was undrafted, Shaq Mason was fourth round, and Marcus Cannon was fifth round. <laughs> yeah. Unbel- un- unbelievable. But he, so did you wild. You know, it didn't work out well when you were here, right? The the injuries piled up you end right. up not being able to play did you enjoy the experience though i mean did you do you regret coming to new york at this point no i don't regret it obviously i, I wish things would have been differently uh would have worked out differently um you know i don't regret it because i put in the work to rehab i mean it's not like i just sat on my butt all day and waited for something to happen i mean i think things could have been done a little bit differently um with my rehab and, and things like that i mean it is it's kind of happened and it's over with um, but I, I don't, I, no, I don't regret coming to New York. I regret getting hurt. Obviously, I wish it didn't happen, but it happened, and I can't, I can't change it. Right. Um, I wish I would have been able to help win, and and uh, you know, we didn't do a lot of winning when I was there. It's not, it's not my fault exactly, but um, I wish we would have, you know, would have been a more successful team. You think you felt there was there were benefits to coming to New York aside from the football side? I mean, like. You know, Rashad Jennings. That's, well, part, uh, that's I mean, part of why. That's part of why he wanted to come here. And look at you know, Rashad Jennings end up on. Uh, so you think he could dance? And he's basically a, a Hollywood guy now, right? So did did you I mean, I mean, did you get what you wanted out of New York in that regard? Well, obviously, help with the media career, getting reps and stuff. But I mean, my two choices were were New York or St. Louis. I mean, it wasn't like I was choosing between the Giants and the Patriots and choosing the Giants because <laughs> they had a better media market, right? I mean, it's not right. like it was the St. Louis Rams who weren't very good and the Giants who were a couple years off the of Super Bowl with Tom Coughlin and Eli Manning and, and you know, the guys who are on defense. I mean, why would I not choose the Giants? So, obviously, the market definitely helps attract free agents, and, and, I'm, and I use the market well to help me with my media. That's one thing that I hate, man, like it's like the people that say – you know, that you focus more on your media. I did not do that. And teams, I know some teams feel that way. I mean, I, I broke my leg twice. It, it, doing doing a radio appearance on a Tuesday after I did my rehab doesn't make my <laughs> doesn't make my leg breakable, right? I mean, it's, it's just a stupid thing to say. Like, you attack anyone there. I put the work in. It's not, that's not, it's not why I got hurt. So 
not like I did a hamstring and you know didn't rehab. I broke my leg twice and dislocated my toe. So um, it's disappointing that that's the, the narrative I have in New York, but it is what it is. I'm, I'll survive. Was the organization a little more dysfunctional than you thought, though, when you got there? I mean, because then it kind of fell apart not long after, right? I mean, you, you saw all the things that kind of went on I mean, the, the I, couple of years after. I, I, yeah, I mean, when I was there, I didn't really sense that, obviously. We still had Tom Coughlin. I think that Tom Coughlin was able to really be um, kind of a guiding light within the organization, just from even including, you know, making, you know, helping owners make decisions at, at that level. He just was the ultimate team builder, right? I mean, a lot right. of what we did was through him. And even though that, I think Jerry Reese had say over a lot of the roster situation. I think Tom Coughlin was so well respected by Jerry Reese and the ownership that he had a lot of say in kind of what happened maybe behind the scenes. And so obviously, you know, him not being there, maybe some warts got exposed um, that we didn't know existed. Uh, obviously the Ben McAdoo thing. I just was surprised the way the whole Eli benching was handled. It, just, it didn't seem to be handled quite the way I thought it would. Um, yeah, and, you're uh, not alone in that, obviously. <laughs> and you know Josh Brown thing. I just you know just a little disappointing, but again, I still have a lot of respect for for the, for the ownership group, and they treated me well. They're always kind to me and my family. So um, it's hard to say from afar what what happened. But obviously, Tom Coughlin leaving, I think, was maybe a, a, a little bit of a factor in more dysfunction happening. Yeah, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you say Coughlin probably sort of. You know, he was able to camouflage some of the, that, that that what was going on behind the scene, or like keep it keep it behind the scene, I mean, and so that so people didn't realize that there maybe there was different people with their hands on stuff, and everybody trying to you know make personnel decisions and, and all these you know yeah. stuff going on behind the scenes, and that that was the beauty of why Tom Coughlin was so successful. But here's the thing, Jordan, you know this is that winning kind of hides all warts, right? I mean, yep. look at Pittsburgh yeah. now. You know, we, we, you know, the, the, the Roonies and, and what they've done with their organization, how respected they are. And they have like one losing season, don't make the playoffs. And it wasn't even a losing season, but don't make the playoffs. And look what's happening with Antonio Brown. And, and the, you know, the owner has to make public comments and they look like a mess. And Tomlin looks, is on the hot seat. I mean, winning kind of cures everything. I mean, even the Patriots, there was some talk, what, two years ago about this run ending and people were upset about this and that. And now Alex Guerrero is back in the, back on the team playing and, <laughs> and Tom Brady's good and Rob Gronkowski, right? I mean, winning cures a lot of this. So it's not just a problem with the Giants itself. I think that when you start to lose, especially when you have high expectations for your franchise, things just, a lot, a lot of tension boils over. And then a lot of people panic and make bad decisions and think it's, you know, things get leaked out and, and things turn for the worse. So some winning in New York will probably help with a lot of that. Jeff Schwartz, winning at life. There we go. No, winning cures it, everything. Winning in life, Jeff Schwartz. Appreciate appreciate the time here. All right. Take care, bud. All right. On to the next one. Let's turn now to Jordan on the beat, where I tell you what it's like behind the scenes to be the Giants beat writer. you got to think of some other questions. My goodness. You know, we just talked to Jeff Schwartz, and it reminds me of this story about when he was a free agent, okay, or was about to be a free agent. So there's like the dead period, about where we are now, right? It's February, March, right before they become free agents. And, uh, you know, his his agent reached out to me and said, you know, and I I spoke to him and we were talking and he said, you know, Jeff, you know, New York's a good spot for him. And, you know, maybe he'd want to come there. What do you think the chances are? The Giants are going to be interested. And these kind of things go go on behind the scenes all the time. 
And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, I could see that. I mean, they were, they were looking for guards. Schwartz at the time was pretty much the top guard on the market. So, you know, I, I reached out at some point to somebody in the organization and I said, hey, you know, just to kind of get a vibe of whether it was realistic, what do you think of Jeff Schwartz? And he was like, eh, average player. Right? So I'm like, eh, okay. Sounds like they're probably not going to sign Jeff Schwartz. And, well, you know, so, so you know, we go, the process goes along. Uh, you know, he's, his name is still talked about a lot as a, as a potential giant signee because they need guards. He's the top guard on the market. Money makes sense. They have the money. So time comes, and I hear at the time, and the agent says, you know, we're getting close with the Giants. And I'm like, really? I'm thinking to myself in the back of my head, they didn't really think he was that good a player. They're really going to sign him to a you know a decent sized contract. So I like reached out to someone in the organization, and I'm like, you know, is this is he BSing me? Is this real? And he's like, no. And he's like, no. Well, we're probably going to sign him. And then you know, a day or so later, they signed Jeff Schwartz, and I'm thinking to myself, what the heck happened in this short period of time? Where they didn't think he was a very good player, he was just average, and they're signing to him to what to what at the time was a a pretty nice deal. And it makes you wonder, you know, what was going on behind the scenes there, who was making the decisions, and was everybody on the same page? And to me, obviously not. And then you could tell as time went along. I know Jeff was sitting there and he was saying how much, uh, and he liked Tom Coughlin. But I always got the vibe that Coughlin's offensive line coach uh, at the time, Pat Flaherty, who followed, who was in Jacksonville up until recently and was with Coughlin again, was never a big fan of Jeff Schwartz. And they kind of, you know, thrust him upon Pat Flaherty. So Pat Flaherty's sitting there with Jeff Schwartz, who's not a player that he pretty much wanted. And it just, it just was very weird. And that's why, to me, I kind of asked Jeff there. I was like, did he sense some of the dysfunction going on? Because me, as a reporter and someone who was going and, and reporting on all this stuff, none of it wasn't making a lot of sense. It seemed to be a very disjointed organization at the time. And now we look back three, four, five years later, and we look at the results, and we kind of realize, okay, maybe this is why they are where they are. Not everyone has been on the same page. Who is making these decisions? Maybe it's not the right people making the decisions. And, as evidenced by their record, over this like five-year span, six-year span, it's pretty obvious. They didn't have the right people making the decisions. Or at least the people with the power in the organizations weren't in the organization wasn't the right people. So that's my little Jeff Schwartz behind-the-scenes story. All right, that's it with this episode of Breaking Big Lou. Hey, make sure you listen. Obviously, you're listening right now if you're you're hearing this. But make sure you tell your friends to listen. Make sure you tell your parents to listen. Your grandma, she likes sports. Make sure she listens. We need to build this podcast up, all right? Get on iTunes. Rate us. Give us a rating. Help us out. You can catch the, uh, the podcast, Breaking Big Blue, on iTunes, Google Play, the ESPN app, uh, a podcatcher if you have an Android, anywhere. And feel free to reach out to me, any social media platform, email also, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
and I'll uh, usually answer your questions. Didn't do a Giants After Dark this week, but we'll get back to one again next week. But that's it for right now. This is Breaking Big Blue. I'm Jordan Ronan. See you next time.